This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel and the Communitor. Spend a couple of days on a boat stuck with us. Send an email to commutacorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and Teresa Corey will take care of you. But in a good way, not, not in a bad way, not like a, a, a mafia type way. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born, identical, snarky twins. I'm George. <laughs> and I'm Jeff. And I'm, my voice is just still recovering from last week's episode. <laughs> All the impersonations that you did? I mean, it's it's amazing how, how taxing that is on your voice, just being so loud and snarky and sarcastic. Like, who knew? <laughs> Who knew, I mean, right? I figured we would have had a buildup of snark over the years. That's true. We do have a pretty pretty big snark buildup that we should yeah. probably call the snarky plumber for or something. <laughs> or something like that. And didn't we originally think of calling it Communicore Snarky? I, we did. That was in our original titles, but we thought it might throw some people off. <laughs> yeah, because some of the lyrics were Communicore Snarky, you really like to be in a theme parky. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. as well. Yeah, yeah, close enough. Didn't work. Close wasn't enough. as catchy. But kind of like last week, we're inspired by certain other podcasts to, to do. <laughs> this week's history segment are about some inspiration, so let's uh, get to it. Inspiration Falls? It's time for Disney History! We've covered so many different topics over the years, almost wholly dedicated to some kind of Disney history. And with previous history segments, we've alluded to inspirations for Walt Disney when he was formulating the ideas for Disneyland. Some are pretty well known, and some actually might surprise you. So for this segment, we're going to try to look at some of the larger inspirations for Disneyland in a kind of semi-chronological order based on what Walt Disney might have experienced them. Okay, so jumping back to 1911, Elias Disney, Walt's father, moved his family to Kansas City, and they lived on Bellefontaine Street, which was 15 blocks away from Electric Park, which was located at 46th Street and Paseo. Walt has stated that the Electric Park was a direct inspiration for Disneyland and that he would visit the park often with his younger sister, Ruth. The Electric Park that helped inspire Disneyland was the actual second Electric Park for Kansas City. Interestingly enough, though, there were more than 40 Electric Parks across the country around the same time. Not many of the named electric parks would last, though, past World War I. The first electric park was opened in 1899 by the Heim brothers, not Heimbuck brothers, the no Heim relation. brothers. I mean, tell. maybe. There might be. Maybe. If there's money involved. Um, yeah, that's true. They opened on the land next to the brewery, which was the largest brewery in the world. And as we've seen in some other amusement parks, breweries and trolley lines were the impetus for amusement parks. The first park had a shoot-to-shoots and a beer garden, with beer piped uh, directly in from the brewery. And the park was built on 15 acres and outgrew itself rather quickly. On May 19, 1907, the second electric park in Kansas City opened, and it was served by three lines of the Metropolitan Street Railway Company and was known as a trolley park. 
So by the time the Disneys lived in Kansas City in 1911, the park attracted one million visitors that year. So to 10-year-old Walt Disney, the park with its 100,000 light bulbs, nightly fireworks, and train encircling the park would have been the place to be and an obvious inspiration. The park had a large collection of rides and attractions like a German village, electric fountain, a dips coaster, penny parlors, a scenic railway, and a Hales tour of the world, which we've talked about before, an old mill, a temple of mirth, sounds fun, Okay. a, a circle swing, ice cream shops, boating, swimming, and obviously a lot more. Walt even remembered being able to ride in the locomotive of the miniature railroad and pull the corded whistle. In 1925, Electric Park mostly burned to the ground, but the owners kept the remaining parts of the park open for the final season. So basically what was left was only the aquarium and the theater. The Himes op uh, operated a coin carnival to replace the destroyed Midway, and the final uh, fireworks exploded over the park on September 1st, 1925, and then the Himes sold the land. Mm -hmm. So most Disney fans are intimately familiar with the story of Walt watching his daughters enjoy the merry-go-round as he sat on a park bench eating peanuts. Now the merry-go-round in question was located at Griffith Park, and in 1896, Colonel Griffith J. Griffith who surprisingly was not a Superman villain, despite or a Spider-Man villain, <laughs> despite that name, he donated over 3,000 acres of Rancho Los Feliz to the city of Los Angeles. Um, in 1903, though, Griffith was convicted of shooting and wounding his wife. And after his release, his reputation sadly was tarnished, and the city refused his donations of money to fund an amphitheater, an observatory, as well as a girls' and boys' camp. Uh, Colonel Griffiths did set up a fund for improvements to the park, and the city actually completed most of the projects after his death in 1919. The Greek Theater was completed in 1930, and the Griffith Observatory in 1935. The, the uh, merry-go-round actually still operates today. From the Los Angeles Parks website, it says, Located in Park Center between the Los Angeles Zoo and the Los Feliz Park entrance, the Griffith Park merry-go-round has been a Los Angeles family attraction for over five generations. Built in 1926 by the Spillman Engineering Company and brought to Griffith Park in 1937, the merry-go-round boasts 68 horses, every one a jumper. Each horse is finely carved and jewel -encrusted, with jewel-encrusted bridles, detailed draped blankets, and decorated with sunflowers and lion's heads. A Stinson 165 military band organ, reputed to be the largest band organ accompanying carousel on the West Coast, plays over 50, uh, I'm sorry, 1,500 selections of marches and waltz music. So Walt then would visit Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan in 1940 and again in 1948 while visiting the Chicago Railroad Fair with Ward Kimball. And of course, that was another influential trip. The Henry Ford Museum would be very influential to Disneyland and is actually outlined in a 1948 memo to Dick Kelsey, who would help design Disneyland. And quoted from the memo, the main village, which includes the railroad station, is built around a village green or informal park, and in the park will be benches, a bandstand, drinking fountain, trees and shrubs. It will be a place for people to sit and rest. Mothers and grandmothers can watch over small children at play. I want it to be very relaxing, cool, and inviting. End quote. So Henry Ford began collecting, for the lack of a better term, in 1906. He collected a lot of Americana, uh, antique machinery, and just various forms of transportation. In 1929, the Edison Institute was dedicated, and it was originally a private site used for educational purposes. In 1933, it was opened as a museum and the public was allowed in. 
Also in 1933, uh, Greenfield Village opened, which is the outdoor living history section. Over 100 historical buildings were moved to the property and arranged in a village-type setting. The intent was to show how uh, Americans lived and worked. The village is staffed by people who conduct period tasks, like sewing and farming. Additionally, many of the goods there uh, made are actually sold there as well. There was also a straight stretch of track for a railroad that was only for display purposes. Uh, currently, though, the rail line travels around Greenfield Village. In 1945, um, moving on, sorry, I should have paused there a little more dramatically. <laughs> In 1945, David Bradley brought a small amusement park on the corner of Beverly Boulevard and La Siena? Siegna? Sure. Sure. Well, you're from Los Angeles, Jeff. Yeah. I figured you'd know that. Well, anyway, so he built that. It, he bought it from the Frockenmeyer Amusement Park. So we're jumping back to Los Angeles. So this one-acre amusement park, located literally in the middle of Los Angeles, had only been open a few years before Bradley bought it. And the land was leased from the Beverly Oil Company and had an oil derrick in the middle of it. So Bradley disguised it as a dragon with flapping wings, which is pretty clever if you think about it. <laughs> Bradley used Beverly Park as a showcase for his own rides and spent time building and repairing the rides there. Normally, there were about 12 rides available, and uh, Bradley rotated them based on taste. And Bradley's wife, Bernice, worked in the story research department at the Disney Studios and is credited with introducing Walt Disney to her husband. And apparently, Walt spent a lot of time at the small park interviewing the children and asking what they liked and what they'd like to see. And in 1950, he showed Bradley the plans for Disneyland. And Walt hired Bradley as a consultant and sent him to Europe to photograph different parks and rides. So Bradley is actually credited with convincing Walt to build Main Street at a reduced scale and worked on the carousel and introduced the idea of themed photo ops. Beverly Park also became a spot for celebrities to bring their children when the park was closed for photo ops and special time. Bradley was quoted as saying that a park should be spotless and an appealing ride must tie together participation of the customer, make the customer feel comfortable, and still be an adventure. So obviously, Walt took a lot from the Beverly Park and Bradley. Uh, Beverly Park, though, closed in 1974, higher rent and increasing the amount of drilling taking place, and Bradley's general fatigue from running Beverly Park caused him to close the kiddie land. Bradley continued to work at his Bradley and K manufacturing plant where fiberglass carousel molds and children's rides were made. Ark Linkletter and Disney visited Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen in 1951. And Linkletter had described the trip and mentioned how Walt took notes on pretty much everything, including the food that they served there. The park had always been known for being very clean and orderly. You know, the twinkle lights, similar to the electric park, would influence Disneyland as well as the outdoor entertainment. And there's so much already been written about how Tivoli Gardens influenced Disneyland, so that we really need to cover it so much. Okay, so the last park that we're going to look at is Children's Fairyland, located in Oakland, California. And like Tivoli Gardens, Griffith Park, and Greenfield Village, Children's Fairyland is still in operation today. So, the original, the original idea for Children's Fairyland uh, came when Arthur Navlet, who was an Oakland nurseryman, visited the Children's Zoo in Detroit, Michigan. He was enchanted with the small-scale buildings that were themed to nursery rhymes. On his return to Oakland, he convinced the Oakland Lake Merritt Breakfast Club, absolutely no relation to the film, <laughs> to help him back the project. So the Oakland Lake Merritt Breakfast Club was a civic organization like the Rotary and the Lions Club. Now, Navit, along with the Breakfast Club, 
weird. I know. We keep. I, I, I it's see it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Uh, they approached the city parks department for approval. The city agreed, but they asked the club to raise the funds themselves, which of course they did. So in total, they raised fifty thousand dollars. They hired William Russell Everett to design the seventeen original sets, and apparently Everett designed seventeen beautiful buildings that followed a standard fantasy architecture. And apparently, he was told the sets were too solemn, so he destroyed all of them and returned with buildings that had no straight lines and just very fanciful colors. So, Children's Fairyland opened on September 2nd, 1950, and the admission was either 9 cents or 14 cents, depending on your age. And it included about 10 acres total. And the sets that they had originally opened with included Pinocchio's Castle, Thumbelina, Three Billy Goats Gruff, Mary Miller, The Three Little Pigs, Willie the Whale, and a few more. And even the entrance to the park was sized for children, and then adults would have to bend over in order to enter the park. Also, the original guides for the park were a dwarfish married couple that dressed like munchkins. That's really weird also. Exactly. So, anyway. Disney did visit many times, and he actually hired Dorothy Maines, who was the first director of Children's Fantasyland, to be the youth director at Disneyland from opening until 1972. The park is also well known for the Open Storybook Puppet Theater, which is still running today and has celebrated its uh, 50th anniversary in uh, 2006. Um, which means a 60th anniversary now, pretty much. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. I can't do math. Uh, nobody, it's okay. No, Why can't you? Yeah. Uh, there were also over 1,000 puppets in storage for various shows. And as Frank Oz was an apprentice puppeteer there during his uh, teen years, which is kind of yeah. interesting. I thought that was cool. Uh, so the park at that point also introduced what's called the Magic Key in Talking Storybook Boxes. And uh, a local TV personality would often go to the park and tell stories. And he started to strain his voice. So he invented a system in which you inserted a key into a box and a pre-recorded tape would tell you a story. They spread quickly across across the country. And I actually remember using those boxes at the Cincinnati Zoo when I was a child. But the keys actually look like an elephant. That's and you stuck the trunk in the key and turned it on and it makes sense. For I listened zoo. for 10 seconds and I walked away. <laughs> oh, George. Obviously, I had man. my ADHD back then. Anyway. <laughs> So. <laughs> so the park received 501c3 status in 1994, meaning it can apply for grants and do fundraising. Also, grown-ups are not allowed in the park without accompanying a child. But, dear grown-ups, don't despair. Children aren't allowed within, uh, in the park without an accompanying adult either. So, you know, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> From there. But, yeah, we've covered a lot of different parks that have obviously influenced Disneyland in many different ways. But you can see how they all had some similarities as well. What do you think about some of these parks? Did you ever get a chance to visit any of them, or have you visited any of them recently, except for the ones that are closed? Unless the time travel's worked. Maybe. Possibly. And then tell us so we can know. But anyway, we'd love to know what you think about some of these, or what do you think are other inspirations for Disneyland or other Disney parks? Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. So this week's book is actually just called Ruth Shellhorn. And you might have been thinking the same thing I was. What? What? (laughs) Who's that? Who's that? So we received a press release about the book on Ruth Shellhorn from the University of Georgia Press. And I thought it was an odd solicitation until I read the blurb, which states, Kelly Comros tells the story of Shellhorn's life and career before focusing on 12 projects that explore her approach to design and aesthetic philosophy in greater detail. 
The book's project studies include the designs for Bullock's department stores and Fashion Square shopping centers, school campuses, including a multi-year master plan for the University of California Riverside, a major Los Angeles coastal planning project, the Western headquarters for Prudential Insurance, residential estates and gardens, and her collaboration on the original plan for Disneyland. There we go. Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. Nailed it. So, yeah, that caught my attention, obviously. I sent the email to Jeff. I was like, well, we should get this book. Um, But after I read the exhaustive book on Kem Weber that we covered in episode 219, uh, you know, he was the architect responsible for designing the Disney Studios in Burbank. I wasn't sure what to expect with another academic work, especially with a person that only had one project association with Disney, like uh, Weber and Shellhorn, both. But right from the first chapter of this book, I was hooked. Uh, Comra's style is very easy, flows very well. She never goes overboard with technical terms, never gets too jargony about landscape architecture. There are lots of photos, although they're all in black and white, and there are several landscape drawings. Although I wish the plans had been reprinted slightly larger, especially the ones about Disneyland. Not that I'm going to build my own Disneyland with the plans. No, but... Wait, what? We're we're building a what? Yeah, the CommuniCore Weekly Land. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, it's the big season five finale. What? Didn't I tell you about that? No. Okay, well, back to the book review anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the, the book itself is a fascinating look at a woman who blazed a trail in landscape architecture at a time when it was male dominated and the country was in the middle of the Great Depression. So very hard for anybody to find work, and she succeeded and succeeded very well. She received a lot of accolades from her peers and from professional associations. So the section on Disneyland, that's the one we're really interested in, really is fascinating and is reason enough in this case to buy the book, especially for Disney fans and researchers. It's about 21 to 22 pages long out of the whole book and includes landscape drawings for almost every part of the park when it opened in 1955. You get to read how Shellhorn really helped Walt humanize the landscaping as well as procuring the types of flowers that Walt wanted based on their colors and their looks. Uh, He said that he always wanted a warm and welcoming feel to Disneyland. So she found plants that would offer that year round and she was also the first person to come up with the idea of replacing the plants uh, of the floral Mickey at oh, the entrance to Disneyland. Very nice. So she really did have a lot to do with it. Uh, so in, in short, which actually this wasn't as short as I thought it was going to be, <laughs> anyone enamored with Southern California landscaping or has been to one of Bullock's department stores or run across the University of California Riverside really is going to love this book. There are a lot of projects that she worked on that are still around today even 30 or 50 years later. And I personally think it would be a lot of fun to visit some of these places and see how the landscape has changed and been for the better. So if you want to read a little bit about Disneyland, I think this is a definite book to purchase. It's called Ruth Shellhorn by Kelly Comras. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. This week's window is located in Hong Kong Disneyland, and it reads, Established 1855, City of Main Street, Don Robinson, City Manager, Carl Williams, Treasurer. Now, Don Robinson was the Executive Vice President and Group Managing Director for Hong Kong Disneyland, and Carl Williams was the Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for Hong Kong Disneyland. 
Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. At the beginning of Star Wars A New Hope, Princess Leia's ship, the Tanative IV, is being pursued by the Star Destroyer Devastator. Now, while the film was being made, model makers actually placed a poster for Star Wars, the original film, in the front of the ship's windows, along with a Playboy centerfold. And <gasps> while they are kind of difficult to see, they've always <laughs> been considered the first five-legged goat of the Star Wars saga. So, over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, America's favorite half-day park, in the new Star Wars launch bay, there's actually a model of the Tanative Four. And much like the film, the front window features a hidden secret for eager fans to find, but it's not exactly the same as it was in the movie. There is a Star Wars poster found in the front, which feature features uh, Mickey and Minnie instead of Luke and Leia. However, there is no Play Duck centerfold in there. I hate to break it to you guys. And to Donald. Sorry. Wow. Yeah, but something we don't hate to break to you is our winner of the Year of a Million or so. I'll take it. Time Cadets I'll take that one. For this week? Yeah, okay. We can do that Let's one. Work. We can do that one. So... As a reminder, because we've still got several months that you can join, join, you join. can sign well, up. join, kind of. You can join, sign up. 39 like weeks. 39 weeks? Wow. That seems like forever. None, it does, actually. Anyway, uh, just send an email to communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday so we can add you to the ever-growing list of potential winners. Yes. There we go. Okay, yeah, so okay. this is... Your turn, right? Yeah, so my okay. here, my, my big spiel this week. <laughs> the winner for this week's A Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets will receive a Fairy Godmother Travel prize package. Yay. And the winner is Trevor C. from Gross Point Woods, Michigan. Hooray! Wow. See, is I that kind of like close? What? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Does he know John Cusack? That's what I, literally the same reference scenes? I was going to make. That's it. I love that film. I need to watch it again. Such a good movie. Oh, we got to finish good... the show first. Oh, okay. Fine. Fine. Yeah, we, I was like, we could just leave it hanging. Sorry, we went to go watch a movie. Bye. Be back in two later. hours. So. <laughs> and then it's just okay. two hours of silence. Exactly. Hey, I wonder how many downloads we get for that. Zero. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess we'll do it then. <laughs> anyway, so thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, or you hear us on iTunes, leave us a rating, or if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. And you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, leave us a message on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Make sure you visit communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com to pick up some incredible t-shirts that hatbox ghost is still up there hot hatbox ghost whistle still up there right yes it is yes I it is i did not say that again anyway go ahead <laughs> um <laughs> if you want your official cadet membership card or communicore weekly stickers send a self-addressed stamped envelope to communicore weekly bl box 432 orange california 92856 and visit patreon.com slash communicore weekly to find out how you two can support the greatest online show for jeff heimbuck I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Lunch. <laughs> <laughs>